Dognitive therapy contains material which may be distressing to some listeners, such as domestic violence, animal cruelty, and mental health issues. A Podcast One production. There's something that deep down inside all us dog lovers know, and that's that we'll probably outlive our dogs. It can be a sad thought. I've got two dogs, Chester and Elma, who, by the way, are in the room with me when I'm recording most of my interviews. And the thought that they won't be with me someday is heartbreaking. Even saying that makes me cry. But that's the way life works. And what that thought does do is make me cherish those little guys more than anything. Emily felt the same about her dog, Leroy, which is why when his time was coming, she wanted to say goodbye the best possible way that she could. Yeah, essentially we sort of came up with a plan to give him an epic farewell party, so had lots of mates around to eat all the cheese. Leroy was renowned for actually stealing cheese at dinner parties and things, but he always chose the same really fancy Dauphinois French cheese. You could have six cheeses on a table and he would pick the same one every time. Um, so we literally had to protect all the cheese from Leroy. So at his goodbye party, we figured if we give him all this cheese and it kills him, it'll only save us a few hundred bucks at the vet. So it's a good way to go, death by cheese. So he got all his cheese, we drank all the whiskey, and then, yeah, about a week later... You got a meat smith steak and off we went to the vet. After Leroy passed, Emily and her friends buried him on a family property. She said that after he died, she cried on the couch for weeks, but that it felt right to give him a proper send-off. For her, it was closure. She felt a responsibility to Leroy to let him die with dignity. I was sort of bereft for a couple of weeks, but I think having the agency and the decision, both for myself and for him. I didn't want him to suffer. I was pretty certain that if it had got to a point where he was visibly in distress or pain, that I'd left it too late. And that I think it falls to us as the the humans in our animals' world to make the tough calls, to decide when, you know, they've reached the end of their life and that they can have that ending with dignity. How do you think people... Uh, would describe other people would describe yours and his relationship <laughs> well a friend posted a really beautiful uh, picture just before he died or the day he died that she'd taken I think at the end of the party where he was sort of sitting on my lap and he was a very kind of lap snuggly kind of dog he was quite happy to have lap cuddles and she said yeah this is my beloved friend and her beloved hound and I think yeah that's how people knew us My name's Laura V, and welcome to Dognitive Therapy, a series that explores how human behaviour shapes dogs' behaviour. Today's episode, CPR. I spoke with Brad Griggs, a renowned Aussie dog trainer who's worked with dogs for over 25 years. From bite prevention training to developing dogs to work on the force, Brad knows his stuff. We caught up to chat about an approach I live by, which is called CPR, being consistent patient and respectful are the hallmarks of building a great relationship with anyone and Brad tells me just how important these are when working with dogs. Brad speaks his mind so a bit of a language warning on this one. If you're sensitive to those kind of things maybe switch to a different episode. Let's talk about problem dogs. You know, a lot of people will have a dog that jumps up incessantly. It drives them crazy, whereas some people have a dog that jumps up and they don't care. In fact, they like it and reinforce it. When does a behaviour become a problem? It's completely subjective, right? So uh, I have a young dog named Snap, 
and uh, a large part of our, uh, she's a Belgian shepherd, and so a large part of Snap's reward system involves her jumping on me. I'm good with that. You know, if you have uh, a 50 kilo lady at 60 years old, and then it's not appropriate. When it when it becomes a problem, I guess is um, when they can't interrupt that behaviour, when they can't elicit another behaviour that is more pro-social in their opinion, so more amenable to them and the situation. You know, that's a good example of a problem behaviour. It's a, it's something that people frequently bump into. How much do you believe that has to do with the owner? Well, let's look at it really simply. What's being reinforced? If the dog keeps jumping, the simplest option to look at is, where's the dog get the win? So if the dog doesn't get a win from jumping, why would it continue to jump? If a dog, do- if a dog goes to a, a waterhole to hunt rabbits, waterhole A has no rabbits for a week. Waterhole B has rabbits once. Where's the dog going? I'd say probably B. Waterhole B, mm. right? Now, that can change. Waterhole B can dry up. Waterhole A can have all the rabbits. Eventually, the dog's probably going to cycle between the two and go, well, B's pretty dry. Let's, let's go to A and see if we've got rabbit town again. If you look at the problem in an operant perspective, as in what's the dog learning and what are you teaching, whether you mean to teach it or not, where's the payoff in the jumping? And the other thing is that, and I understand today that you want to talk about um, consistency as one of the principles in the conversation, and that's a, a really great example of consistency is that people are consistently inconsistent hmm. in um, dealing with those kind of problems. And the other thing is, um, how often do you hear it? Oh, my dog keeps jumping. Well, what are you, what are you doing about it? Oh, I've tried everything. They haven't tried anything. <laughs> I've tried everything that's easy for me to try that requires no real investment of effort or time. And I've right? But I've yeah. tried everything. Yeah. It's part of being a human, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's why I've said I've, I'm inconsistent. Like I've, I, I'm more consistent about the things I'm inconsistent about, mm. but I also know them. The other thing is too, like a lot of people do things that lead up to jumping. We could call them feeder behaviours. I've never used that term before, but it works, you know. So uh, a lot of people have dogs that demand attention from them and they've learned the dog has learned that demanding attention in a certain way is useful so for instance like pouring you know pouring you Mm. right well if one paw doesn't work maybe the dog tries two paws maybe it just means you're not getting a response maybe it means more paws yep okay so so now we get two paws and two paws is like it's got to be a good 50 percent of the jump Mm. So do people need to decide what they do and don't want from their dog and then need to endeavour to be consistent with that expectation? Is that the best way for people to get what they want from their dogs or to stop their dogs from doing what no, they don't I want? No, I disagree. And I'm going to tell you why so that you don't cry. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll withhold the tears for a second. So, no. Um, so you use the word they need to decide what they expect from their dog. It's not good enough. Get off your ass and actually work towards the expectations that you have. Because every single dog owner has expectations, right? What are they doing about it? I'd be out of business. You know, I wouldn't have made any money in the last 16 years. I'd be out of business if people actually worked towards their expectations. How important do you think it is to have an obedient dog? Obedience is an interesting concept, isn't it? Again, what is obedience to you? 
Obedience is compliance, if, if you look at what the term is supposed to mean, the way that it's used in modern language. So if people say, I do dog obedience, cool, so you teach your dog to comply with a cue, cool. So obedience is important. If you look at, does the dog comply with what you say? It's, it's important. A lot of dog trainers, um, unfortunately, view compliance as the only important metric by which to measure their own practice and the efficacy with which they apply, in, in their case, their trade mm-hmm. um, with their clients. So obedience is important and, and that's contextual too. I mean, it depends on what we're talking about. If you're talking about is it important that your dog is obedient to a cue to recall, that has a much greater level of import to is it in, you know is it important that my dog begs as a trick mm. the way that a dog learns something and also how the dog feels about what it's learned because you cannot separate those two is very important the more intelligent you want you to be so i'm into developing dogs so i want a dog to think and i want a dog to solve problems i don't want a dog that's shit scared about making a mistake mm. And, he, and doesn't believe that it can fail successfully. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about that? Because I'm quite passionate about wanting to empower dogs to think and make good choices and try to set up scenarios in which they can be empowered to do that. How do people at home show their dog or develop their dogs to think rather than to tell them what to do? Terrific question. Um, I would have to say that for starters you need to understand that your dog is not your fur baby, right? So a dog is a dog and all dogs are different. Mm. So where's your dog strong? Where's your dog weak, right? So just as to develop a dog, you need to look at where your strengths and weaknesses are. What do you know? So what can you leverage to do a good job of that? And in some cases, people just don't know what they need, what they don't know. And that's cool too. The way to get to that is to begin doing something and you'll become more aware of the things that you don't know. You'll see someone do something or display a concept and you'll go, damn, like I had no idea that you could even do that that way. I knew nothing about luring a dog. Now I know what luring is. I'm exposed to it. Now I can seek more understanding. But yeah, in order to develop a dog, you need to understand the dog's personalities. You You need to know where his edges are, where his strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and you need to start to try and develop all aspects of that dog towards being an absolute hitter of a dog, like being the best dog that dog can be. The way that most people do things is, you know, they phone in the training. Oh, I went to puppy school. Dude, you did four lessons, right? If you actually look at the the level of experience and accreditation that these people have with any level of um, objectivity other than the fact it's close to your house or it's convenient for you to go to, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you start going, oh, you know, if I travel an extra 15 minutes, there's a, a much more experienced trainer that does things with his dogs or her dogs that are way more complex than what I'd aim for with mine. If they're doing those way more complex things, then they're probably much better set up to help develop my dog. And, and uh, if you want to develop your dog and you get a puppy, well, it all starts there. The quality of the early learning cannot be overstated. Where does respect come into dog training? Respect's a really interesting term. Um, Again, it's completely subjective. If you Google respect, 
pretty much all the results that come that came up in the couple of minutes I spent looking was Caesar Milan, Caesar's Way, blah, 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 right? So I'll make this really clear. <laughs> the extent of the pat on the back I'll give Caesar is that he brought people's behaviour and its impact on dogs into the spotlight. In terms of credibility, in terms of advice, it's the most charitable way that I can phrase this is that it's uh, were you to look at his advice uh, as a how-to on training or a guide, it's not going to serve you or your dog well. Um, a diplomatic... Yeah, I'm not renowned for my diplomacy in all spheres, but respect is a human construct, right? Um, I think that if when we look at dogs, my impression is that when we look at dogs, again, it's a bit anthropomorphic to say my dog respects me. I'm not saying all anthropomorphism is bad because, and and for those that don't know, that's the attribution of human uh, traits or emotions to a dog. And sometimes anthropomorphism assists in empathy so people can understand um, the dog's position a little bit better. I don't see that as a negative, but yeah, when we start, my dog doesn't respect me. What the fuck have you done to earn your dog's respect today? Right? All you do is tell him no. Hmm. Right? When was your last training session? Oh, 1986. Like, what have you done? I'm sorry for swearing, but what have you done? right? The last 50 interactions that you guys have had, 25 of them is you telling the dog no when you're getting frustrated with the dog. So get off your lazy ass and begin to teach the dog what you would prefer it to do instead, right? You're happy slapping bowls of food down in front of the thing. He eats like a hoover, right? You've got a very amicable dog. The only reason that your dog is getting along well in your household is because your dog's a freaking superstar. Like he doesn't want the drama. So he avoids the drama, right? That... People would say, he respects me. Okay, well, that's your impression of your relationship with your dog. Uh, no, your dog likes you. You have a good bond with your dog, but your dog is also incredibly understanding. And if you had a different type of dog, that dog would do you up. It's your job to guide the dog. So instead of respect, ask yourself a few different questions. What do I do to inspire performance from my dog? Am I a stinty bastard when it comes to paying my dog, right? With what frequency do I reward behaviours that I would prefer to see? How often do I just turn off my goddamn mobile phone and turn around and face my dog and engage with my dog in genuine learning situations that I'm engineering so that I can more or less guarantee that he's going to be doing good things that I can reinforce because the dog will tend towards doing those things. Um, maybe maybe we can pick the example of dogs that um, aren't behave well around other dogs. Okay, perfect, because so, so, that so, happens a lot. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So you start looking at that. Let's ask the first question. So my dog behaves in X manner towards other dogs. Cool. What else can he do? What else can he do? What's the answer that, you know, oh, he, he sort of, he, you know, he can sit and he can drop. Cool. So if you tell him to sit and you walk off 10 metres, what will he do? Oh, he'll definitely sit. Cool. So where are the butts? What do you mean? Well, where are the butts? 
Like, he'll sit butt. So what if someone bounces a ball nearby? What if a kid comes past and I say, oh, well, then he won't do Okay, so your dog doesn't sit, right? Like, your dog, your, your dog doesn't know what sit means, right? Not as he needs to understand it. So you, you have, you know, and then you start looking at the drop and the recall and whatever else. And the dog doesn't do any of these things. Well, these people have chains of behavior. You know, the dog does a half-ass job and then they slap their legs and they encourage the dog to do the rest and whatever else. And the dog's almost never paid for doing this well. And they spend no time sort of building this. They just expect that the dog should do it often because they're the boss. Mm. Yeah. So now you can quickly turn that problem around to not what does my dog currently do, it's what else can my dog do instead. And when you turn it around to what else can my dog do instead, now all of a sudden the spotlight's off the dog and the spotlight is on the owner and they start going, shit, right? I am doing not a goddamn thing that I need to be doing to get my dog to where it needs to be. What to do to stop that? It's really complicated. Dogs can display aggression for a myriad of reasons. Um, but if you want to take the perspective of what can you do about it, you need to make sure as a dog owner that you're working on those things that are very likely to form part of any type of sustainable long-term solution to the current behavioural norm that you're trying to address. I'm Laura V, and you're listening to Dognitive Therapy. If you enjoy this series, give it a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show for free. If you have a, an aggressive or a hyperreactive dog, what happens if you go to an off-lead dog park? Why would you go to an <laughs> off-lead dog park? Right, so, so let me give you the off-lead dog park. Because this happens field. a lot. This happens yeah, yeah. a lot in our field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... Here's what legislation around Australia says. I'm going to talk about Victorian legislation. It's the same everywhere we've been able to find. You need to keep your dog under effective control. How is effective control judged? Now, the only real way to judge effective control is, and in Victorian legislation it's not clearly defined, but the only um, way to judge effective control is, does your dog come back when it's called? Now, that, that would be control, okay? So your dog's off-lead at an off-lead dog park and you call it back. Rastus. Psst. Cool. So I need to say that three times to get Rastus to come back to me. Mm. Would we call that control effective? Uh, do you think it's fair some to say? Some people might say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some people would. But if you look at it away from the fact that that person's emotionally attached to their dog, if you, if you said to them, someone called their child back, right, because there was danger nearby and the child didn't come, they had to call them three times. Would you say that that was effective communication? No, you wouldn't. No one would. The same exists with the dog because a large percentage of those dogs, their owners have no control over their dogs anyway, right, and they give no shits about their dog trundling up to other dogs. Um, it's, it's, it's a cesspool of just cognitive dissonance. Oh, no, your dog's a dog and my dog's a dog and so they have to be friends. Not every dog has to get along. Do you think some people inadvertently set their dogs up for failure? They don't Absolutely. necessarily realise that they're doing it, but they're reinforcing all the wrong behaviours and their dog's failing and then they're wondering why. Yes, Laura, absolutely. It frustrates me that dogs are disadvantaged in that way and that it's sort of fairly selfish for people because people can understand it pretty easily if they choose to, right? But yes, people inadvertently set their dogs up for problems. Have a look at the puppy school scenario that I gave you. 
right? Um, someone who does four sessions of puppy school during, and most most people that get a puppy get it at say eight weeks old, right? So eight to sixteen weeks is the functional period during which they have the most uh, potential to impact their dog's view of the world into the rest of its life. And dogs are like little sponges, and that learning has this uh, has a, a quality to it that we call relative permanency, right? So nothing's really permanent, but it's the lens through which they view all the other stuff that they do. These are the first things that they learn. Um, and the majority of people that go, well, my dog went to puppy school. Has your dog had training? My dog went to puppy school. Dude, your dog is four and a half years old, <laughs> right? Like you, you wouldn't send a kid through to grade three and then when he turns 18, expect him to go into the workforce and, and function at any kind of reasonable level. You, you, you simply wouldn't, mm. right? And and take, you know, people say, oh, well, I socialise him, I take him to the dog park. Where he does not listen to you, you know, wh- where nothing is going on, um, nothing is going on in favour of that. That dog's not learning anything other than that other dogs have a high value and that it can ignore you the first 56 times that you call it, mm. right? So, um, yes, but, and people do those things because they think they love their dog, I understand that they love their dog and they go, I want my dog to have fun. Yeah, but life's not necessarily fun. There's lots of things we have to do in life that aren't fun and it's no different for dogs. Uh, The talk about punishment is another one that comes to mind. Oh, yes, let's talk about that. Can you define exactly what punishment means? Because I think a lot of people can misunderstand the definition of what a punishment is because punishment occurs in our daily lives all the time. Yeah. But it's a, it's a very powerful world in the realms of dog training. Can you explain it? <laughs> Punishment <laughs> is currently in, in popular vernacular, in dog training terms, punishment's a dirty word. What punishment really is, uh, if you read any psychology textbook, there's no moral uh, application, uh, sorry, there's no moral judgment attached to the application of punishment right, in, a, in, a, in the process of learning theory, right? So there's basically two ways uh, that you can go if you're trying to increase or decrease behaviour. There's two ways for each of them. If you're trying to increase behaviour, you are reinforcing. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to decrease a given behaviour, you are punishing. So if your dog expects a treat for sitting, he expects a reward contingent upon the sit, and then he doesn't sit. So he doesn't get that reward. You withhold that reward that he expects. You are punishing your dog. Mm -hmm. Now, in the same breath, if you are walking along with your dog and he goes to pull on the leash and you stop when he pulls, you're doing two things. You're compelling your dog to stop pulling and you are negatively punishing your dog. He's pulling, therefore he doesn't get to continue the walk. The walk is what he wants and you're withholding it from him. So there's a positive and a negative punishment, a positive and a negative reinforcement. So they're two examples of negative punishment. Punishment is, a nat- is inbuilt into life for us, for dogs. Just because it exists for us doesn't mean that it's right that a dog has to be punished, but it exists in the dog's world anyway right and so these con- it's a consequence right it's a consequence if you do something you know uh, if you stick your head in the bin then you get food that's a that's a consequence that's a reinforcer if you stick your head in the bin 
And in the process of doing that, your head gets stuck in the bin and you find that a bit scary, right? And your owner has to come and help you out and get that. You're probably not going to stick your head in that bin again, right? You were punished for that, right? These are natural consequences. Dogs learn these very well. Where does patience come into training? Uh, (laughs) So you want to talk about patience, you just got to understand, like, in the start, when you get your puppy, your puppy is going to be busy being a puppy and it's going to do stuff that for the past eight weeks has worked for it to get what it wants. But your dog doesn't have to stop doing these things that it's been doing straight away if you're a little bit understanding and you show some patience and you take the time to shape the dog towards the adult that you want it to be. And you, people need to be patient. They need to understand, right? If your dog wheezes on the rug... That's on you, pal. You didn't give your dog a toilet break. What was your dog doing on the rug unattended? How did it get a chance to wee? Right? Oh, well, I was in the kitchen. Yeah, well, watch your dog. Be eyes on your dog, right? Um, oh, the dog won't stay on its bed. Why do you expect a 16-week-old puppy to stay on its bed for a protracted period of time? Put it in a crate because you can't be hands-on, so all you're teaching it to do is to win by getting off its bed. So why would you not prevent it from making a mistake? That means that instead of telling it off, you're going to be stuck reinforcing something else, such as teaching it to go to its bed. Yeah, so, so patience is super important. If, you're trying to, if you take the perspective that you're looking to build the performance that you want to see, patience is important. And it's also really important to understand, like, it's really normal to go out there and train your ass off five days a week with a dog and then the, you turn around and that dog behaves on day six like it's never had an ounce of training before. Dogs have off days, mm. you know. Exercise some patience. And if, you, and if you're half decent as a dog training, you turn around and you just go, God damn, what have I done like in the last five days? How did I wreck this dog? And you'll obsess about it until tomorrow morning or that afternoon when you go back out and you try the same thing and you get something that's roughly approximate to what you'd been getting before and you go, oh, I didn't break my dog. Like, <laughs> I didn't wreck this. Right? Oh, thank God I used a little patience. Mm. Yeah, so patience is super important. Patience is super important if you've got a dog that has behavioural issues. So these problems have developed over time and then people go, oh, if, if, it's, if, if I can't fix this in a week, I'm going to put it down. Dude, you're a dick. You just watch this take place over 12 months. You've done not a goddamn thing to help your dog in the direction that it needs to go now. Nothing has been, no preparation work has been done for this dog. And now you're expecting the dog to change, completely change a social attitude and a profoundly reinforced set of behaviours that you've allowed it to work up to and now you want to change it in a week. All right? It's it's not going to happen. They are living breathing, thinking, and perhaps most importantly, feeling beings. And unless you're prepared to honour that, you are going to go nowhere fast in dealing with your dog's problems. You want to talk about uh, dogs that, you know, display really problematic behaviours? It's often because they're in a shitty place emotionally. They feel horrendous anxiety. They feel fear. They may be phobic, right? Who knows? Um, and, and understandably because it affects people, but then people turn around and they're like, well, you know, this affects me this way. No shit, Sherlock. How do you think it affects your dog to get him to act that way? Because you tell me that this is out of character. You tell me that he's a wonderful dog, but for these things that he does, why does the wonderful go away? For what reason? 
What must he be feeling? If he's that wonderful, what must he be feeling to start acting in this less than wonderful way? So patience. You've got to have patience. You've got to have the ability to look inwards, right? And if, you, if you're going to own a dog, it's, it's like it's like owning a kid. <laughs> you know, you, you, you have to, if, if your kid's being a little so-and-so, you need to have a look at what am I doing about that? Am I contributing to that? How is what I'm doing affecting that situation? There's my 500 cents. Brad Griggs, you are... A fascinating person to talk to. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) I'm humbled by that. Thank you very much for having me in. If If you were to say something to Leroy now, what would you say? We miss you, buddy, but I'm really glad you're not peeing on my shit anymore. (laughs) This show was written by me, Laura V, and my amazing producer, Dave Zwolinski. Audio production is by Darcy Thompson. Executive producers are Jennifer Goggin and Grant Tothill. If you want to see additional content, photos and videos of some of the gorgeous dogs in this series, go to our Instagram page at podcast1au or check us out on Facebook. Dognative Therapy is a Podcast One production recorded in the Podcast One studios, Melbourne.